Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. P.M. and 1.30 a.m. 12.30 p.m. Lexington and Louisville. Country Weekly. Repeated at 4.30 p.m. and 12.30 a.m. Eastern Kentucky and Moorhead. Get fit. Repeated at 5 p.m. and 1 a.m. 1 p.m. Book series. Repeated at 9 p.m. and 5 a.m. 2 p.m. New York Times. Repeated at 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. 3 p.m. History Hour. Repeated at 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. You are listening to Radio I, your source for printed news and information. This service is intended for listeners who are blind, visually impaired, or have other disabilities that prevent them from reading. All materials are read as written and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Radio I. For further information about this service, please call 859-422-6390 or visit our website at www.radioi.org. That's www.radioeye.org. Welcome to the reading of the Lexington Herald Later. Today is Friday, August 5th, 2022. And your reader is Sally Blanton with Bill Sally at the controls. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Now, from our studios located in the north side branch of the Lexington Public Library, please join me for this live reading of the Lexington Herald Leader, donated to Radio Eye by the publishers. Let's first read the weather, starting with the WKYT five-day forecast. Today, we will have a high of 82 and a low of 71, humid with a T-storm. Saturday, a high of 85 and a low of 71, thunderstorms. Sunday, a high of 88 and a low of 72, a T-storm around. Monday, a high of 87 and a low of 70, a p.m. T-storm. Tuesday, we'll have a high of 79 and a low of 67 with a couple of T-storms. Now let's look at the Almanac, which is Lexington Wednesday. The high temperature was 92, the low 70. Normal high is 87 and normal low is 66. Last year's high was 83 and last year's low was 55. The record high was 99 degrees in 1888 and the record low was 49 in 1965. Precipitation on Wednesday was zero. Month to date, trace normal is 0.44 inches. Year to date, 33.32 inches, and normal is 31.92 inches. 
last year to date, the precipitation was 33.09 inches, and the record for the date was 2.03 inches in 1891. The sun rose this morning at 6.45 a.m. and will set tonight at 8.44 p.m. The moon will rise at 2.35 p.m. and will set at 12.27 a.m. We will have a first quarter today, August 5th, a full moon, August 11th, a last quarter, August 19th, and a new moon on August 27th. The pollen count is moderate. And the main offender is mold. Now let's turn to the headlines on the front page of today's Herald Leader. Above the banner, we have today an extra weekend. Digital readers get more. Look for reviews of what's new at the movies, including Brad Pitt's latest bullet train. And in today's paper in sports, this Kentucky football wide receiver chose practice over U-20 World Track Championships. Below the banner, we have four headlines. The first, state leaders maul flood relief from $2.7 billion surplus. Eastern Kentucky residents helping each other through floods. Towns work to reconnect water sewer after floods. And last, Louisville officers face charges in Breonna Taylor's death. So let's start with the first major story. State leaders maul flood relief from $2.7 billion surplus. This is written by Austin Horn of the Herald-Leader. The state of Kentucky recently received some of the best economic news it's gotten. A record budget surplus report of $945 million. That came one year after a reported $1.1 billion surplus. These figures, combined with budget decisions from savings-minded members of the legislature, have led to the state's Budget Reserve Trust Fund ballooning to a record $2.7 billion. With much of eastern Kentucky reeling from historic floods that cost dozens of lives and an untold amount of property damage, it begs the question how much of that money will be spent to help the region recover. And how will it be spent? The state's purse strings are in Republican hands, with the party dominating both chambers of the legislature. Senate President and Eastern Kentuckian Robert Stivers, Republican of Manchester, held a press conference on Wednesday addressing the question of what was needed. Stiver said on Wednesday that using some funds from the budget surplus for flood relief was brought up in a meeting with Governor Andy Beshear. Both Beshear and Stivers have expressed interest in a special session to allocate funds to eastern Kentucky. Stivers added that it was too early to tell when the special session would be called. House GOP Majority Floor Leader Stephen Rudy, Rep- Republican of Paducah, told the Herald-Leader he hadn't had a discussion about holding a special session, but he was open to one, given the situation. Stivers, whose home of Clay County, lost two residents to an isolated flooding incident, mentioned that such a package could be similar to Senate Bill 150, which made $200 million available from the state's general fund to fund relief in western Kentucky after tornadoes and severe storms killed 80 people. 
$45 million of that was appropriated immediately. Stiver said he reached out on Wednesday to Appropriations and Revenue Committee members and staffers to start looking at draft legislation. Senator Johnny Turner, Republican of Harlan, represents two of the handful of counties hardest hit in Knott and Letcher. He suggested that the financial needs in the wake of the eastern Kentucky floods might tally higher than that of the western Kentucky due to the challenges presented by the topography. He said the volume of structures destroyed and the likelihood of severe damage to water and sewer systems could be unique to the havoc caused by floodwater funneling through several valleys. Stiver and GOP legislators gathered at the press conference, including Turner and Senator Brandon Smith, Republican of Hazard, seemed willing to help with state funds, but emphasized that an assessment of the damage would need to take place before they begin to put a dollar figure on a rebuild. Quote, we're not ready. We don't have the figures. We couldn't tell you what it is that we need to do, Stiver said. An Eastern Kentucky House member from the other side of the aisle, Representative Angie Hatton, Democrat of Whitesburg, said that money from the Budget Reserve Trust Fund, also known as a rainy day fund, should be unloaded to help fund relief in the region. Quote, I for one will never forgive the leaders of the General Assembly. If this isn't the rainy day that we have saved money for, Hatton said, I'm so glad we saved a lot of it and now is the time to spend it. Hatton's Letcher County was one of the hardest hit areas, along with parts of Knott, Perry, and Breathitt counties in the flooding. A new dynamic when discussing the Budget Reserve Trust Fund is one of the GOP's big ticket items from the last session. House Bill 8, which sets Kentucky on a path to get from 5% to zero income tax in half percent increments. The more money taken out of the fund, the less likely it is that Kentuckians' income tax will drop. The bill requires that the state maintain a budget reserve trust fund equivalent to 10% of the actual revenue drawn in a given fiscal year for the personal income tax rate to drop by half a percentage point. The most recent revenue figure for this past fiscal year was $14.7 billion. So the current Budget Reserve Trust Fund of $2.7 billion clears that figure by well over $1 billion. As for potential relief package uses, Diver said that one could be fronting money to local governments and individuals that may be covered by FEMA or insurance later. And much of the relief package's composition depends on which needs federal agencies like FEMA fill and which they don't. Flood mitigation projects of epic proportions, Stiver said, were more likely to be handled by the federal government. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers spent over $1 billion in inflation-adjusted dollars to literally move a river in Pikeville because of flooding concerns. Eastern Kentucky Republican Congressman Hal Rogers touted in a press release that he's previously secured $800 million in flood control projects for the region. Quote, after seeing an aerial view of the widespread damage, it is clear that this flash flood was a natural disaster of epic proportions that we haven't met in our lifetime, Rogers said. The work to rebuild must be well-funded, well-orchestrated, and long-lasting. Stivers also said when asked about the role of climate change in the havoc that he wasn't sure anything could be done on that front at the state level. 
That's not an area that I have expertise in. Have there been changes? I've never seen this in my 60 years. I don't know without looking at data or having that type of background that I can comment on it, Stiver said. Now let's go back to the front page. Towns work to reconnect water sewer after floods. And this is accompanied by a photograph showing the Hazard Water Plant, which is located at 601 East Main Street in Hazard, Kentucky on Tuesday. Um, it does not appear to be underwater at this point, according to this photograph. Uh, now, here is the story is written by Beth Musgrave and Bill Estep. Water and sewer crews from across Kentucky are headed to eastern Kentucky to help counties and cities restore busted and broken water systems a week after deadly floods knocked out water service to thousands. Approximately 13,590 customers are still without water, said Governor Andy Bashir during a Thursday press conference at the Capitol. That's down from 18,000 customers on Wednesday. Quote, the water systems are heavily damaged. Some are wiped out, Bashir said Wednesday. It's going to take significant time and significant dollars to restore what was damaged. As the difficult work of bringing water back online continues, many towns, counties, and local utilities worry about how they will pay for the needed fixes that could cost millions. Fourteen water treatment systems are under limited operations due to power outages and storm damage, Bashir said on Thursday. Three wastewater treatment systems are not operational, including Hazard's treatment system. Two wastewater systems are on bypass, meaning at some point the wastewater treatment system shut down or was not able to process stormwater. Thirteen wastewater treatment systems are experiencing discharges, Bashir said. Multiple water systems are also under boil water advisories. Bashir cautioned that it could take months to restore some systems that have seen significant damage. Running water is critical for rebuilding efforts. Bert Baker lives in Perry County. His house was not damaged in the flood, but he's had no water for several days. There's a storage tank near his home. He had water for a few days after the flood, but then it cut off. He assumes the storage tank near his home ran dry. Without water, people can't wash clothes or clean their houses. It's awful, Baker said. You can't do anything. Billy Smith, 81, lives in Dwarf. His house is slightly elevated, so water didn't get in, but it did flood his garage about two feet deep, damaging a wheelchair and other items and leaving a coat of mud. A neighbor offered him a power washer to clean it out, but he can't use it without water. He also can't shower. Bad right now. I could use one, he said. The lack of water has stymied cleanup efforts. Quote, it's hindering cleanup, said J.D. Cheney, executive director and CEO of the Kentucky League of Cities, which is helping coordinate relief efforts for cities, including getting crews from other local governments to help restore downed water systems. It's also a public health concern. The League of Cities has also helped coordinate getting Whitesburg police vehicles from other cities after much of the city's cruisers were lost in the floods. Berea police are also coming to parts of eastern Kentucky to help with traffic and patrol to keep looters at bay, Cheney said. 
Kentucky Rural Water Association has seven staff on the ground in eastern Kentucky to help devastated local utilities with evaluation and restoration efforts, said Scott Young, executive director of the association. In addition, the association is helping coordinate logistics of getting volunteers from other local water districts to hard-hit areas to repair what can be repaired and also to help with assessments. Many crews are already there and others will soon join the restoration efforts, he said. There are a lot of systems that are coming back online, sometimes in a limited capacity, Young said. As of 8 a.m. Wednesday, approximately 42 percent a Breathitt County's approximately 2,000 customers had water restored. That was up from 30% on Tuesday. But parts of that water system are no longer there. Pipes have just been washed out, said Estel McIntosh, the superintendent of the Breathitt County Water District. McIntosh said crews from other parts of the state were expected soon to help with water restoration efforts in areas where there was infrastructure that could be fixed. Quote, the northern part of the county was not hit as bad as the southern part of the county, McIntosh said. It could take months and millions of dollars to restore water to the entire system, he said. That's millions of dollars that Breathitt County doesn't have. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, will likely reimburse cities and counties for those costs, but Breathitt and other counties don't have the money now to make those fixes. McIntosh said the state could use Federal Clean Water Act money or funding from the American Rescue Plan Act to give cities and counties for water and other repairs. The local governments could then give the money back to the state once FEMA reimburses the local governments. Governor Andy Bashir said Wednesday he will likely call a special legislative session to pass a flood relief package. Parts of Perry County and Hazard are still without water, officials there said. The northern part of Perry County still was without water on Wednesday, said Jerry Stacy, Emergency Management Director of Perry County. Quote, the water lines in the hardest hit areas are just like the roads. The flooding was so massive it destroyed a lot of infrastructure and so forth, Stacy said. We have got people that are working around the clock on that, and we have got contractors and so forth getting involved and working around the clock to get that done. Heinemann Taylor, excuse me, Heinemann Mayor Tracy Neese worked much of Wednesday trying to repair what water lines he could in a Knott County town of about 700 people. Roughly half of Heinemann's water comes from Southern Water and Sewer District in McDowell, and the other half comes from Knott County Water and Sewer District. A very small percentage has water back on, he said. We are hoping it will be days. We are working diligently on it. What little equipment the city had, a truck, a backhoe, an excavator, mowers, weed trimmers, and tools needed to repair water pipes were washed out. Nice hopes other cities may have surplus tools they can send to Heinemann. Nice's own home, as well as several of his family's members' homes, were flooded. Heinemann has three city employees and Nice. Nice hasn't had time to return to his flooded home to determine what can be salvaged, as he has spent most of the past seven days fixing what can be fixed with limited tools. Nice spent a week in December helping with debris removal in Bremen after deadly tornadoes tore through western Kentucky. He has received a lot of help and phone calls from friends he made during that week. Western Kentucky is pouring a lot of love into this town, he said. Still, more help is needed. The state will need to step up 
to help local governments, schools, and utilities pay for the cost of cleanup and repair, Nee said. We have a very small tax base, Nee said. We don't have millions. We don't have the liberty of paying up front and having FEMA pay us back. Heinemann, which has a budget of little more than $500,000, only receives $8,000 a year in state road money. Quote, that's not enough to blacktop the parking lot of City Hall. Representative Angie Hatton, Democrat of Whitesburg, estimated that it would take at least $6 million to get water back to much of Letcher County. A majority of the county, with some exceptions in and around Whitesburg, is without water, she said Wednesday. City of Hazard Utilities was also struggling to bring homes and businesses back online this week due to the amount of damage to the system that serves an area that includes 6,500 customers, according to its website. Quote, crews are working in small sections where the least amount of damage occurred from the flooding. These sections will be the first restored, according to a post on City of Hazard Utilities' Facebook page. There are several factors that go into getting everyone restored. This will be a long process and a lot of work. We have catastrophic damage that will still need to be fixed in sections before the restoration can occur. Hazard officials could not be reached for comment. But some on the utility's Facebook page were becoming anxious after a week without running water. We are patient, but it's getting to all of us, especially us elderly, wrote one woman. And that story is accompanied by a second photograph of the hazard water plant uh, from a different, a slightly different angle uh, at 601 East Main Street in Hazard on Tuesday. Now, here is another story on the front pages. Louisville officers face charges in Breonna Taylor's death. This is written by Taylor Six of the Herald-Leader. Four current and former Louisville police officers have been arrested for their roles in a botched search warrant that was executed at the home of Breonna Taylor and resulted in her death. Kelly Goodlett, Joshua Janes, Kyle Meany, and Brett Hankinson faced federal charges, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced Thursday morning. The officers were charged with civil rights offenses, unconstitutional use of force, obstruction, and conspiracy, Garland said. Garland said he spoke with Taylor's family to notify them of the arrests. Quote, I share but cannot imagine the grief of the family and loved ones of Brianna Taylor from events that resulted in her death. Brianna Taylor should be alive today, Garland said. Ben Crump, an attorney who specializes in civil rights and has represented Taylor's family, commended the announcement on the charges. This day is about Taylor's mother, Tamika Palmer, her family, Crump said, it's about Brianna and all the other Briannas across America, the black women who have been denied justice throughout the history of this country when they have been abused, assaulted, murdered, raped, and disregarded. Because of Brianna Taylor, we can say this is a day that, and now I have to turn to the in, into the inside page, a day that black women saw equal justice in the United States of America. A court record filed Thursday indicates Goodlett was charged with conspiracy. Conspiracy charges against Janes and another former detective were also mentioned in the court record. He was fired from the position in 2021. According to court documents, both Goodlett and Janes knowingly falsified an affidavit 
to get a search warrant for Brianna Taylor's home where she was killed when police executing the search warrant fired 32 total shots. Officers fired after Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, fired at them with a legally owned gun because he thought they were intruders breaking into Taylor's apartment. The court record alleges that both Goodlett and Jaynes put false and misleading information in the affidavit in order to get the warrant. The warrant was one of five obtained by investigators who were looking into potential drug trafficking in Louisville, according to the Department of Justice. The primary target of the investigation was Jamarcus Glover, a man who had been previously arrested for committing drug offenses. Police documents that alleged Taylor was connected to drug crimes of her ex-boyfriend Glover were obtained by media outlets. In the documents, police outlined their case for executing a no-knock warrant at Taylor's apartment, citing jailhouse phone calls and other surveillance, tying her to Glover and suspected drug activity. Glover indicated in recorded jail calls that Taylor was holding money for him. But he said in a later call from the jail that he didn't understand why police would search her apartment. He said the only thing tying him to her house was bonds, an apparent reference to prior bond payments made for him by Taylor, according to the Courier-Journal. In an interview with the Courier-Journal, Glover said the information police used to tie Taylor to the drug activity was misleading and incorrect. The officers who carried out the warrants at Taylor's home were not aware the information had been falsified, according to the Department of Justice. Officials from the Department of Justice said Thursday that Goodlett and James allegedly conspired to cover up the fact that they had used false and misleading information to get the warrant. In narratives listed in court records around March 10 or 11, 2020, James sent Goodlett a draft of the affidavit which claimed he verified from a postal inspector that illicit packages were being received at Taylor's address. Court records allege that Goodlett knew the claim was false. Despite knowing that this allegation was false, Goodlett failed to change the statement or object to it, court records said. After Taylor's death, Goodlett and James allegedly called, texted, and met with each other to discuss the false information and coordinate a cover story, according to court records. The two men met in a garage on the evening of May 17th and stated they needed to get on the same page because they could both go down for putting false information in the Springfield Drive warrant affidavit. After an investigation at the state level, Hankinson was previously the only officer charged over the shooting. He was found not guilty on wanton endangerment charges. Garland said Thursday, the Justice Department brings charges when we believe substantial federal interests have not been vindicated and need to be vindicated. Hankison and Jaynes had previously been fired from the department prior to Thursday's announcement. The Justice Department said the Louisville Metro Police Department is still under a federal civil rights investigation separate from the charges announced Thursday. And the story is accompanied by a photograph. It shows Brianna Taylor in a uniform holding flowers and she is holding a certificate and she's standing in front of a big plaque that says Louisville and a, two flags and the caption says this undated photo provided by Taylor family attorney Sam Aguar shows Brianna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky. Now let's go back to the front page. We'll start on the story, but I might have to interrupt it for the obituaries. 
Eastern Kentucky Residents Helping Each Other Through Floods. This is written by Taylor Six of the Herald-Leader. Devastated by floods that have left dozens dead and damaged or destroyed homes, some Eastern Kentucky residents say hardworking lifestyle will help them recover. Leaders at a church in Knott County have already seen that as residents in the county have helped their neighbors clean up despite suffering their own catastrophic damage. Jordan Hughes, a 25-year-old who lives in Knott County, said the area will push through the flooding that has wiped away much of his community. Quote, up until six months ago, we had dirty well water and didn't have city water, and we live a little bit in the past, but that will help a little bit in this exact tragedy because people around here know how to wash their clothes out in the water and gather water, he said. People know how to operate backhoes, and I've seen them trying to get people's yards or at least their driveways for now rebuilt, and back at their house, they have their own problems to deal with, he said. A lot of people are helping others from daylight to dark and go home and help themselves and restart it all again in the morning. Hughes and his family live in Knott County and their homes had minimal damage. His brother is pastor at the Lighthouse Baptist Church and his father James is assistant pastor. They're using the church as a base to help others in the community get a hot meal, water, or hygiene products. On Wednesday, he was driving into Hollers, delivering meals and asking people what they needed if they couldn't leave their homes. When he gets to neighborhoods, Hughes sees neighbors helping each other despite their own tragedy just next door. Quote, there are people who have lost people and everything, and they're asking what they can do for others and saying, what can we do today? And ours can wait, Hughes said. I know it sounds cliche, that's just how the people here are. We've always tried to help our own with whatever we can. And now I'm going to have to interrupt this story because it is 8.30 and time to turn to the obituaries. We read only the name, age, and location if it is given. So here is the obituary index for Friday, August the 5th, 2022. David Henry Atkins, 54, topmost. Wesley Allen, 47, Hazard. Kendall Ramon Berry, 34, Lexington. Brilliant Boggs, 98, London. Pauline Hensley Kreider, 84, Kenver. Benny Durham, 86, Crab Orchard. Cherie Miller Ferry, 62, Georgetown. Antonio Lamar Fogel, 31, Springfield. Bradley Aaron Falbel, 35, Lexington. Jesse Wilson Franklin, 83, Versailles. Patty Fugit, 77, Hazard. William Bill Gregory, 77, Wilmore. Jim Hamlet, 64, Russell Springs. Shirley Lowry Haney, 85, Richmond. Jesse Catherine Harris, 79, Lexington. Sue Harris, 69, Georgetown. Gabe Hensley, 30, Hazard. William Charles Honesi, 79, Lexington. Deborah Scott Kinder, 58, Lexington. 
Monty Gay Long, 82, Lexington. Ruth Madden, 87, London. Brenda Mason, 79, Lexington. Joyce McKinney, 97, Harrodsburg. Charlotte Elaine Olmsted, 3, Harrodsburg. Mary Irene Patterson, 91, Barberville. Nancy Perkins, 67, Lawrenceburg. Scott A. Perry, 65, Frankfurt. Danny Ratliff, 33, Richmond. James Tony Rose, 67, Lexington. Kevin Jerome Russell, 56, Lexington. Kathy Faye Shell, 72, Redbud. Linda Showman, 78, Georgetown. Helen Bond Sloan, 92, Nicholasville. Joletta Talbot, 89, Crab Orchard. Anna M. Turpin, 74, Lexington. Ralph Wellhoit, 77, Moorhead. If you would like any further information about any of the obituaries today, please visit this site. It is at capital LLegacy.com slash obituaries slash capital K Kentucky. Again, that site is Legacy.com slash obituaries slash Kentucky. Also, you can now call us at our Radio I studios at 859-422-6390, and we will try to read them to you over the phone. Now let's continue on with the story about uh, Eastern Kentucky residents helping each other. And this was uh, an interview with a man, let's see, named Hughes, Jordan Hughes. And Jordan Hughes recalled one picture of a girl who lived nearby who gave the shoes off her feet to someone who needed them more at the time. Countless things like that have happened, he said. Governor Andy Bashir and other officials have also made note of neighbors helping each other in eastern Kentucky. You want something in the midst of darkness that is an incredible ray of light? Virtually every person in this county who didn't have their home wiped out, and some who did, were here helping an amazing and enormous operation, Bashir said in a press conference. There had to be a hundred plus volunteers filling people's cars up as people came through, giving them hot food to eat, baby formula, diapers. Growing up in a community of about 15,000 people, Hugh said everyone is like family. He has seen people who held him when he was a newborn lose everything they have, which adds another layer of devastation to an already tragic situation. You would not believe the amount of grown men and women that have worked their whole lives, and when you ask, how are you doing? And they break down and cry, and they say, if I, I worked my whole life for what I have, and it is all gone because of this. He said people in eastern Kentucky are givers and helpers themselves, proud and resilient, and help is needed to get through this disaster. People I have seen my entire life work from daylight to dawn, this 55-year-old man that wouldn't take a donation. I took one up to him, and he is the type of person who would not take a donation from anyone in the world unless he had to, and I handed him a meal, and he was eating it before he had it out of the bag, you said. Donations have poured into eastern Kentucky communities from all over Kentucky and outside the state. 
We have had people come in from Lexington and other states. He said, we continue to get pallets of water, and as soon as it gets here, there's need for more. Boy Scout troops, football teams, basketball fans, strangers from hours away, all have made efforts to help with recovery. It will take a lot of work, and it will take a lot of help from other areas, you said. We are very prideful people, but we do understand that we will have to have help from other people. At Lighthouse Baptist Church, Hughes said they had been serving meals, accepting donations, and will continue to do so. The church has received an abundance of clothing, which he said is not the primary need. The biggest need is water, hygiene products, non-perishable food, and trash bags, he said. People have also donated money directly to Hughes so he can buy materials necessary for those he is serving. Hughes said the whole community needs support from others to carry on. Quote, it's hard to imagine what it all looks like without being here, he said. We are trying to let people know how bad it actually is. This isn't just eastern Kentucky crying wolf. There are homes that where they were sitting, it's just the foundation. Some homes you can't even find because they were washed down the creek. Four babies are dead, and I've broken down many times about that. We need everyone's prayers to go forward. And now here's another inside story related to the floods. Not County flood victim awoke to water around her bed, daughter says. This is written by Valerie Honeycutt Spears of the Herald Leader. Robin Shepherd, Robin Shepherd got a 2 a.m. call from her mother, Diana Ambergi, when floods struck Not County last week, saying that water was around her bed and she was in the dark because the electricity was out. We both called 911 numerous times. They told her they couldn't get to her house, said Shepard. The last time I talked to her, she was so scared and begging for help. Ann Berge was one of the victims of devastating flooding last week around eastern Kentucky. Rescuers found her body on a creek bank about five miles away from her home. She was 65. The Heinemann resident had been preparing to take a family vacation to Florida, Shepard said. It would have been her first trip in quite a while. The way she went was the thing she was terrified of. She couldn't swim. Governor Andy Bashir has said at least 37 people in Kentucky perished in the flood. Knott County saw the most residents who died, with 16 bodies recovered in the county. A 17th Knott County resident was swept away and later found in Breathitt County. And now let's continue on the inside pages. University of Kentucky sends supplies medical staff to help with flood relief. This is written by Monica Cast of the Herald Leader. In the aftermath of last week's deadly flooding in eastern Kentucky, the University of Kentucky has been working to send medical supplies and staff to the region. UK Healthcare operates multiple clinics in the region that were impacted by the flooding and has been working to set up mobile clinics in the days since. Severe flash flooding hit eastern Kentucky on July 28th, leaving at least 37 people dead and countless properties in the region damaged. Among those damaged were some UK properties, including facilities at the Robinson Center for Appalachian Resources Sustainability. UK Police Chief Joe Monroe has been coordinating efforts between the University and the state's Emergency Operations Center to deploy people and supplies in the region. Medical supplies, other donations, and volunteers have been sent to the areas impacted by flooding in recent days, Monroe said. One of the things that the university is very focused on, and President Eli Capaluto says a lot, is that we're the University of Kentucky, but we're also the University for Kentucky, Monroe said. That's something that we take very seriously.
The university has been sending medical supplies to the area, including IV fluids, tubing, and vaccines. There is a huge need for hepatitis A and tetanus vaccines to help protect people from those infections, which a UK pharmacy team has been sent to help distribute, Monroe said. Additionally, Kentucky Children's Hospital has coordinated with Costco to get donations of clothing and other necessities that will be delivered to the area, Monroe said. UK Center for Rural Excellence in Healthcare, located in Hazard, had been working to deliver food, water, and other supplies to the area, according to UK. More than $2.4 million was raised during Tuesday's telethon and open practice hosted by the UK men's basketball team with proceeds going to benefit flood victims in eastern Kentucky. Several university properties sustained damage in the area, Monroe said, including teaching and research facilities at the Robinson Center in Quicksand and the June Buchanan Clinic in Hindman. Extension offices and UK healthcare clinics in the region also had some damage. The extent of the damage is not yet known as some places are not accessible yet. Staff has been working to clean the June Buchanan Clinic to reopen it as soon as possible, and mobile clinics are currently being used to help the community. Daniel Wilson, director of the Robinson Center, said the flooding came quickly last week and impacted about 12 structures on the property. The Robinson Center and Robinson Forest Camp are used for agricultural teaching and research and also host events in the region. Several of those structures have been completely destroyed, Wilson said, and others have damage that may be able to be repaired. The extent of the damage and repairs needed is not yet known, and Wilson said they're still in salvage mode. We tried to get out as much equipment and vehicles and tractors as we could, and we moved them to higher ground, but it happened fast, Wilson said of the flooding. Four employees were stranded at the Robinson Forest Camp without electricity and water until Saturday night, but all were able to leave safely once the road was passable, Wilson said. Research projects hosted at the Robinson Center were destroyed in the flooding. The Robinson Center and specialists from UK are working to determine what's next for those projects. The research projects, for all accounts and purposes, were underwater, Wilson said. We have some corn, hemp, and things on site that were essentially destroyed by the floods. UK extension offices in the area were not heavily damaged, Wilson said, and most are planning to reopen on Thursday. The extension offices will be collecting donations for the area. Extension office staff are among people in the area who have lost their homes. Wilson said they have been working with UK to get resources available to those staff members. This is not the first time in recent months that UK properties have been damaged by natural disasters. In December, the tornadoes that swept across western Kentucky destroyed the UK Research and Education Center in Princeton. The facility, which includes the Grain and Forage Center for Excellence and opened in 2019, was almost completely destroyed. UK received $9 million in the state budget to rebuild the center, which conducts research impacting grain and beef farmers. The university has been working to contact the 1,100 students who live in the area through texts and phone calls. Monroe said UK staff members check with the students and see if they have any needs and work to assist those students, he said. Students from eastern Kentucky who were impacted by the flooding and who had housing agreements with the university for the fall semester are able to move to campus early if they are in need of housing, Monroe said. As of Wednesday morning, 20 students had been in contact with UK because they had been impacted by last week's floods, although none had yet requested an early move-in date.
said Andrew Smith, Assistant Vice President of Auxiliary Services. Several UK staff members were impacted by the floods and lost their homes, Monroe said. The university has been working with them to get the supplies they need, as well as counseling and other needs they may have. As of Wednesday, there had been no reports of any UK employees missing because of the floods, Monroe said. Donations to help members of the UK community can be made to the university's Basic Needs and Persistence Fund for Students and the Crisis Program Gift Fund for faculty and staff. Donations to help statewide relief efforts can be made to the Team Eastern Kentucky Flood Relief Fund set up by the state. And this story is accompanied by a, an overhead photograph taken by a airplane or helicopter, and it shows uh, the mountains, and there's a road on the right, and then there are waters, uh, it looks like covering trees and houses, and it says homes and structures are flooded near Quicksand, Kentucky, Thursday, July 28, 2022. Now I'll continue on in the inside pages. Federal agencies investigating after one reported dead in a Kentucky plane crash. This is written by Christopher Leach of the Herald Leader. Multiple federal agencies are investigating a plane crash in Harrison County Wednesday afternoon that left one dead. According to the Federal Aviation Administration, a single-engine Piper J-3 Cub crashed at Cynthia Harrison County Airport while trying to land. One woman was pronounced dead on the scene, and a man was sent to the hospital with serious injuries, according to WKYT, the Herald-Leader's news reporting partner. Investigators told WKYT the plane nosedived into a grass field and weather could have been a factor in the crash. The National Transportation Safety Board has confirmed it's also investigating the crash. The FAA said the NTSB is in charge of the investigation. The NTSB is an independent federal agency that investigates every civil aviation accident in the United States as well as other significant accidents. Here's another inside story. Monkeypox declared a public health emergency in U.S. This is written by Eli Stokals of the Los Angeles Times. Byline Washington. The Biden administration on Thursday declared the outbreak of monkeypox a national public health emergency in an effort to raise awareness and accelerate efforts to combat it. Quote, we're prepared to take our response to the next level in addressing this virus, and we urge every American to take monkeypox seriously and take responsibility to help us tackle this virus, said Xavier Becerra, Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, during a briefing with officials and the media. The move, which has been under consideration for several weeks, aims to fast-track potential treatments and vaccines, which, under the declaration, would no longer have to go through the usual federal reviews. The order will also allow the government more flexibility to administer the current supply of vaccines. Currently, the government is reportedly undersupplied in its stockpile of Gianos, the only monkeypox vaccine currently approved by the Food and Drug Administration. Although officials have said around 1.6 million Americans are at high risk for monkeypox, the U.S. only has enough doses of Genos to fully inoculate 550,000 individuals. 
The World Health Organization declared monkeypox a global public health emergency on July 23rd, and some state officials have done the same, including California Governor Gavin Newsom, who issued a statewide emergency declaration on Monday. Earlier this week, Biden appointed Robert J. Fenton, Jr., a longtime official at the Federal Emergency Management Agency, to coordinate the national response to the virus. Monkeypox is a rare disease similar to smallpox, though symptoms are sometimes milder. It is largely spreading among men who have sex with men, as well as transgender and non-binary people, though health officials warn that anyone can contract the virus through direct contact with infectious sores, scabs, or body fluids, or by touching clothing or bedding used by a person with the virus. Nearly 800 cases have been confirmed in California, according to the California Department of Public Health's most recent data. The state reported that 98.3% of those cases were confirmed in men the majority of whom identify as part of the LGBTQ community. Nationally, more than 6,600 cases have been confirmed since May 18th, also predominantly among gay men. Most experts believe those figures greatly underestimate the actual spread of the virus. And this story is accompanied by a photograph, and it shows... Uh, it looks like a woman seated at a table with a face mask on, and there's a poster... And then there are some other individuals uh, lined up in a line. Uh, and the caption states, People arrived to check in Wednesday at a monkeypox vaccination site in West Hollywood, California. Although officials have said about 1.6 million Americans are at high risk for monkeypox, the United States only has enough doses for the of the Genos vaccine to fully inoculate 550,000 individuals. And now we are going to turn to the opinion pages in today's Herald Leader. We have three opinions. The first is Al Zawari killing was a great success of a bygone era. And this opinion is written by Hal Brands of Bloomberg Opinion. The U.S. drone strike that killed Ayman al Zahari, the head of the Al-Qaeda and one of the last remaining architects of the 911 terrorist attacks, delivered a measure of justice. It did not deliver resolution in the debate still surrounding U.S. counterterrorism policy. For President Joe Biden, the strike shows America can still target bad guys even after the controversial withdrawal from Afghanistan. For his critics, it shows that the U.S. pullout showed al-Qaeda's leadership to take up residence in Kabul. There is some truth to both arguments, yet the strike is best seen as a testament to America's creation of a man-hunting machine without parallel in human history, one that is already becoming harder to maintain as Washington turns to things other than counterterrorism. From what has been disclosed, the al-Sawari operation was not a minor lift. Biden was heavily engaged with the issue for weeks. The strike surely involved extensive use of surveillance and reconnaissance assets to find Zawahari, map his pattern of life, and identify operations for killing him without also killing innocents. The strike itself required penetrating unfriendly airspace, probably from a base in the Persian Gulf or perhaps Central Asia. After the attack, U.S. intelligence operatives on the ground in Kabul reportedly confirmed al-Zawari's death.
This investment was undoubtedly justified, if only to show, as Biden remarked, that no matter how long it takes, no matter where you hide, if you are a threat to our people, the United States will find you and take you out. The operation, like the one that killed Osama bin Laden 11 years ago, is also a window into the formidable capabilities of the U.S. developed to locate and neutralize enemies in some of the least accessible places on Earth. Following 9-1-1, the Pentagon vastly expanded its special operations forces, skilled at killing or capturing terrorist leaders and disrupting the networks on which they relied. The intelligence community used human and technological assets, along with partnerships with friendly and not-so-friendly nations, to track down extremists. The U.S. created a drone fleet that is used to reach into Pakistan, Yemen, and other inhospitable areas. It developed weapons, such as the missile that got al-Zawari, that could kill targets with remarkably little collateral damage. A network of bases, large and small, in the greater Middle East and beyond, provided the logistical footprint for these activities. The results could be very impressive. Sooner or later, the world's most prominent jihadists were, to use a favored euphemism, taken off the battlefield. Lethal strikes eliminated countless bomb makers, facilitators, and planners, frequently forcing those who remained to concentrate on keeping themselves alive. This capacity for targeted killing became all the more important as America's objective shifted from transforming societies in the greater Middle East to simply pummeling extremist organizations so that they could not easily operate. Yet manhunting on this scale was immensely expensive. It often required paying millions of dollars to track down a particular quarry. These investments gradually became prohibitive as other pressing geopolitical priorities emerged. In 2018, Gina Haspel, director of the Central Intelligence Agency, announced that her organization was pivoting away from counterterrorism and toward competition with China and Russia. The Defense Department and U.S. Special Operations Forces are making similar shifts. Finally, the withdrawal from Afghanistan forced Washington to part with some of the military presence that provided ready access to extremists, although U.S. forces remain in Iraq, Syria, Somalia, and other dangerous spots. The al-Zawari strike isn't the end of America's struggle with terrorism, not least because threats persist from Afghanistan to Africa, yet it is perhaps more a tribute to a prior era than the present one. The successful mission reveals a great deal about the tools the U.S. developed to wage a war on terrorism in the period after 9-1-1. What it reveals about the efficacy of counterterrorism policy in a moment of competing priorities and fewer resources is harder to say. And that was the opinion of Hal Brands of Bloomberg Opinion. Now here is another opinion piece. GOP is blowing chance to make midterms a referendum on dams. This is written by Henry Olson, a special to the Washington Post. Republicans would like the midterm elections to be a referendum on the Democrats. But that won't be easy to pull off, as Tuesday's primary outcomes show. The Republican path to victory in November is easy to discern. Nominate broadly acceptable candidates who can stroke the MAGA base while appealing to moderates who back Joe Biden. Focus attention on the president's perceived failings, especially on inflation and immigration. Make the midterms a change election that lets conservatives and independents express their displeasure with the way things are going.
defer important questions about what the GOP intends to do with its power until after the election, and simply reap the rewards that accrue from running against an historically unpopular president. That playbook is working in some places. Republicans in Missouri avoided disaster when they rejected disgraced former Governor Eric Greitens and nominated State Attorney General Eric Schmidt. Two GOP House members from Washington State who voted to impeach Donald Trump also appear to have survived Trump-backed challenges, saving both seats for the party. Elsewhere, however, primary voters' rashness has led to some risky nominees. Arizona's entire Republican ticket will likely be composed of candidates who have endorsed, to varying degrees, Trump's election lies. While the governor's remace remains uncalled, current leader Carrie Lake is so steeped in election conspiracy theories that she was calling her own primary race's legitimacy into question before the votes were even tallied. The state party's nominees for U.S. Senate, Secretary of State, and Attorney General have also embraced the false stolen election narrative. Republican leaders have asked the party to move on and look to the future. That's not going to happen in Arizona, giving Democrats a massive opening in a purple state. Republicans are also giving Democrats golden opportunities in Michigan. Their gubernatorial nominee, Tudor Dixon, recently said she opposed abortion even in cases of rape or incest. The stunning victory in Kansas for abortion rights shows that this is wildly out of step with popular opinion. Dixon would be wise to try to run away from the issue and say those are her personal views, but that she would not try to implement them in office. If Dixon can't or won't move with the tide, another chance to win in a purple state will likely go by the wayside. The Kansas vote presents a further challenge for the entire Republican campaign. Turnout was nearly double that for the 2018 primary election, showing that pro-abortion rights Kansans were motivated to vote. At least 20% of Republican primary voters also voted for abortion rights, MSNBC political analyst Steve Kornacki reports. That might not indicate that similar pro-abortion rights Republicans will vote against her party in the fall. Indeed, a recent poll suggests they won't. But pro-abortion rights independents might not be so choosy, and Republicans need their backing to win the most in most swing states. That possibility means that the national GOP should try to take abortion off the table as quickly as possible. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, and Senator Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, should hold a joint news conference soon in which they declare unconditionally that no federal anti-abortion bill will receive a vote in the next Congress if they are in charge. That's the best thing they can do to combat Democratic efforts to paint every Republican as an abortion extremist. These risks stem from the same source, the desire of angry activists for radical, immediate change. These Republicans believe... American freedom and culture are being rapidly stripped away, and they want someone who will take the country back. Unfortunately, we're very close to out of time. We did not get to read the helpers flocking to eastern Kentucky for FUD cleanup. Applications for U.S. jobless claim up against last week. Kentucky distillers, bourbon groups launch whiskey auction for flood relief. Forecasters trim hurricane season outlook. Still a bit busy. And... 
probably some other inside stories, which unfortunately we didn't have time to read. So this concludes the reading of the Lexington Herald Leader for today, August 5th, 2022. Your reader has been Sally Blanton with Bill Sally at the Master Controls. Thank you for listening and please stay tuned for sports news right here on Radio I. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.